Hey, well, good morning and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. My name is Adam. I am the pastor at Faith on Hill Church. And if you have uh, never watched one of our Sunday services before, we want to say welcome. We'd love for you to uh, get on the chat and just say hello. Uh, whether you're watching on our website, faithonhill.com, or if you are watching on Facebook, we want to, you to know that you are welcome here. And if you've been watching these for quite some time now, uh, we are glad that you are here as well. While we are thankful for the platform of Facebook, uh, for best viewing experience, we do recommend checking out faithonhill.com every Sunday morning at 1030. Now, Faith on Hill is a church in the Milwaukee, Oak Grove, and Gladstone area in North Clackamas County, southeast of Portland. But uh, we are online every Sunday morning at 1030. We are also in person, socially distanced, wearing masks, all of those things. But we are in person every Sunday morning as well in our building with live prayer and worship and teaching. We're teaching the same notes. Uh, I tend to think the sermon is about 80% the same between the online and the in-person, uh, but, you know, there's always some off-the-cuff thing that's different, and so I think it's about a 10-20% difference. We are doing a series looking at the stories of the Christian faith. We know that uh, there are not just one story that's told, but often there's multiple stories being told about the same thing. And sometimes they are in uh, harmony and sometimes they are in conflict. But we've talked about the stories that we tell, the story that God tells, and the stories that we live by. And we've talked about things like uh, the Bible. We've talked about things like humanity. We've talked about things like God himself. Uh, in the future, yet to happen, we're going to tell the stories of the Christian faith regarding the church uh, regarding Satan, regarding the end of things, uh, the end times. So we're going to be talking about uh, a few things going up even till Christmas. We're going to tell the story of Christmas. Uh, this morning, we are going to tell the story of the two covenants. The two covenants. Uh, there are, actually, before we get into that, let me define what I mean by a covenant. A covenant is an agreement, a lease, or a contract. If you are in a covenant relationship, most likely you are in one of two or both kinds of covenants. Either you live in a neighborhood, a housing development, or a condominium complex that has a homeowners association. And so there are covenant agreements that are made, meaning you can't paint your house bright, purple or hot pink in uh, places like, uh, you know, Seattle, where I grew up, there's no such thing as a covenant and you can paint your house, whatever you want. And uh, it can be as crazy as you want. Uh, and there's certainly places in Seattle and old Portland and San Francisco and so on where people have done that. But if you live over in, you know, Happy Valley or down in Oregon City or somewhere where they're building new housing developments, kind of like uh, they're building down on Lake Road in Milwaukee, um, there are homeowners agreements and covenants involved with your house or with your condominium. You can't paint your house whatever color you want. If the city's noise ordinance is from so you, you can't make noise until 6 a.m. and you have to stop making noise at 11 p.m. Let's say that's the city's. I don't actually know what it is, but arbitrarily, let's say it's that. Uh, 
And the homeowners association has a covenant agreement with all the people that live there that actually our noise goes from 8 a.m. So two hours more until 9 p.m. So you have to be quieter if you live on this street and you can't paint your house a certain way and you have to maintain your lawn. These are agreements. You agree to live here, but here's the terms you have to abide by. The other type of covenant that you might be in is a marriage covenant. When you get married, two people, man and a woman, come together and they say, this is what I pledge. I pledge to do these things and not do these things, and I pledge to do them until death do us part. That is a covenant agreement. Covenants were very common in the ancient world, and you see them in the Hebrew scripture that uh, Abraham Isaac or Jacob or the people of Israel would make a covenant agreement with a tribe or a city or a nation. God likes to make covenants. Now, don't ask me why. I have some guesses, but I can't tell you 100% for sure. The Bible, there's no Bible verse where God sits and says, I just like to make covenants and here's why. But we see God making covenants all throughout the scripture. There are, <clears throat> there are uh, six main covenants. Some people will tell you it's five. Some people will tell you it's four. But I believe there are six main covenants in the scripture. The first is the Adamic covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. I'm putting you in this garden. It's perfect. Here's a tree that if you eat from that tree, you will enjoy perfect health, live forever. That's the tree of life. Here's this other tree. And do not eat from that tree. If you do eat from that tree, on the day that you eat from it, you will dying surely die, which is the literal translation of that verse, meaning that the curse of sin and death, we were spiritually made dead and we began the process of physically dying. There is a positive. Hey, live in covenant and eat from the tree of life and a negative. Don't eat from this tree or the covenant will be broken. There's the Noahic covenant, which is God actually made two agreements with Noah. First was a positive. Everybody that gets in the ark will live. Every animal, every person that gets in the ark will live. And then there was a second part, that covenant, where after the flood and the rainbow goes in the sky and God says, every time you see that rainbow, it will be a reminder of this promise, this covenant, this agreement that I am making with you, that I will never destroy the earth again with a flood like I did in the days of Noah. Now, I have personally never feared a worldwide flood. Not even when that silly movie came out 10 years ago called 2012. Uh, you know, it's that kind of end of the world sort of apocalyptic movie and, and it depicted essentially a worldwide flood destroying the earth. Um, I, I am not afraid of that. But you could see in an ancient culture during times of... of horrible flooding that there could be that concern that God's going to wipe us all out again with a flood. And God says, no, I promise I'm not going to do that. There's the Abrahamic covenant. And that was the agreement God made with Abraham. I will be your God and you will be uh, my people. And I will, if you, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And, and by the way, when God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, I do not believe that that covenant has ceased. I believe that is still in effect. 
It's not part of our main point this morning, but you can take that for what it's worth. God loves to make covenants. And then there is the Mosaic covenant. Now, this is one of the two big ones. When people refer to the old and the new covenant, this is the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant, when God brought the people of Israel together under the leadership of Moses, that's where it gets the name Mosaic, and God said, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you do this, then I will bless you. If you don't do this, or if you do the opposite of that, it's what we call sin, if you, if you sin, if you reject my laws, if you don't keep my cr- decrees, then there will be a punishment. There will be a negative result. That was the agreement. And all of the people agreed to this. If, if they kept God's laws, if they kept God's uh, commands, his decrees, then they would be protected. Then they would be promised good crops. Then they would be promised safety and security. They didn't need a king, no taxes. They didn't need an army. Again, no taxes, but also no having to send your, your young men and your future generations off to war because God would protect them. All he needed is one small shepherd boy to defeat their enemy, you know, David and Goliath. Uh, there's multiple stories throughout the, the Old Testament scriptures of how God miraculously and divinely protected his people without them having to draw their swords or having to lose anyone in battle. God said, I will be, my, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law. Then there's the Davidic covenant where uh, David wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, David, I've never asked you to do that. And I don't live in a house made of human hands, and your hands are bloodied. You are a warrior. You are a man of war, and my house is to be a house of peace. So I'm I'm not going to let you build me a house, but David, I'm going to build you a house. And it was that promise that from David's descendants, his royal line would come a king for whose kingdom there is no end. And we believe that Jesus Christ, the heir of David, is that king. And finally, there's what we call the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of, of God's mercy that was created and sealed through Jesus's death and his resurrection. When Jesus died, all of the old Mosaic covenant laws and rules and statutes were fulfilled in Christ. And we have this new covenant, this better covenant through Jesus so that I don't have to keep every single rule so that God will accept me. I only have to have faith in Jesus Christ, his work, his goodness, his righteousness. And God looks at me and he looks at you if you are in Christ and he says, I see Jesus in you. That's the new covenant. And the two main covenants we want to focus on, this is the story of two covenants, is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, keep all these rules and you will live. And the new covenant, because Jesus kept all the rules, you can live by faith in him. Now, the, what are the stories that we tell? Some people look at the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and the New Testament, the writings of the apostles, the early Christians, and they look at the Bible and they see two gods. They say there's this Old Testament God and he is mean. He likes to smite people. We don't even use the word smite anymore, but we will when we're talking about the Old Testament God. 
He is angry and vindictive and vengeful, and he has the wrath, and lo, his wrath is coming. And then there's the New Testament God. That's Jesus. He's a sweetie pie. He loves everybody. He loves the little children. He loves the animals. He loves everybody. He even loves the bad people. And Jesus just loves everybody, nice as can be, never heard a fly. Both of these views tell me that you haven't read the Bible. I'm just saying it's very common, both Christians and non-Christians. There was a guy named Marcion. He lived less than, he was born right at the time when the last of the apostles, John, died. And within 40 years, he was, he was about, it was about 40, 44 AD, uh, sorry, 140 or 144 AD, he went to Rome and he declared his doctrine, which is that he rejected all of the Hebrew scripture. He rejected any of the writings of the apostles except Paul. And he liked the gospel of Luke because Luke was connected to Paul. But then he said anything that was too Jewish, because he was an anti-Semite, he was a racist, and anything that was too Jewish, he uh, edited out of Paul's writings or the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts. Sounds like Thomas Jefferson. We talked about that a few weeks ago in the story of the Bible. And ever since then, there have been people just like Marcion who have said, you know, there's this Old Testament God and there's this New Testament God. And there have been non-believers and heretics that have said that. And there have been believers that have acted like that. Well, there's like, I like the New Testament Jesus because he's happy and nice. Well, I said earlier, that shows me that you haven't read the Bible. And I don't mean that to be negative or contrary. I just say, read the Bible and you'll see it's not true. And here's how I know that. Because in the Old Testament, this God that gets painted as vengeful, and vindictive and full of anger at everybody. There's a city called Nineveh, and Nineveh is the most like wicked city in its day, one of the most evil places in the world at that time. And God forgives them. He sends a prophet. This prophet's not even a very good prophet, Jonah, and he goes and he's like, hey, uh, you guys should repent or something, I guess, because he doesn't like the people from Nineveh. He's, he's, he's uh, racist towards them. And then he goes outside the city to watch and he sees that they're repenting. And he's like, oh, they're repenting. And God has mercy on the city and he doesn't destroy them. And Jonah has this whole conversation with God. Like, this is why I didn't want to come. I didn't want to tell them the, this coming judgment because I knew that if they repented, you would have mercy. That's the Old Testament God who I believe is the same God as the New Testament. Incidentally, the people who say, and there are those in our day, there's a guy named Greg Boyd, uh, who's a big proponent of this. There's a guy named Brian Zahn, who I try to give a little more charity to. I'm not a fan of Greg Boyd. There's actually, an, I'm not gonna get that. But, but these guys who, they say Jesus is loving and nonviolent. And so the God of the Old Testament something's not lining up because Jesus is God. And if Jesus is the God in the Old Testament, he can't be violent because he's nonviolent. He's loving. That's not true. Read your Bible. Jesus cleanses the temple in the gospels. The gospels agree on this one, that, that Jesus goes and with violence, he gets a rope together. He makes a whip and then he starts whipping these evil uh, charlatans who were, who were, stealing money from the people who were oppressing the poor. And Jesus violently clears them out of the temple. And he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. The book of Revelation, 
says that Jesus will one day come back and with just the words from his mouth, he will defeat the armies of the Antichrist and he will kill them. I remember in uh, Bible college, I had a professor who, um, you didn't want to mess with this guy. He had been a captain in the British army and he had been in counterintelligence back in the Cold War. So he had dealt with the IRA and the KGB. And he wasn't somebody you wanted to mess with. And, and I remember him one time, he was lecturing on the end of the book of Revelation where Jesus comes back and he's killing these people, these armies of, of evil. And he had glasses and he, he stopped and he looked right at us. And he put his glasses down a little bit and he goes, sometimes God kills people. And he puts his glasses back on and you're like, I think you might've killed people and now I'm terrified. I hope I'm not terrifying you this morning, but what I'm trying to say is this, the God that we worship, the God of the Bible in the Old Testament is full of mercy. He's full of mercy in the New Testament too, but Jesus kills people rightly, justly. And if you have a question about that, my email is adam at faithonhill.com. If, that, if that's something that's really hard for you to hear, I would love to listen to you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm telling you things that are in the Bible, but I also know that we have to wrestle with things in the Bible. And there are parts of the Bible that I have a really hard time with. And just because I've come to terms with this part of the Bible, I want to have great charity for people that that's a struggle. So if you have questions, if that's something you struggle with, you can put it in the chat. You can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. Uh, love to, to talk with you about that. Some people read the Old Testament as if it were the New Testament. I am convinced, by the way, I am convinced that most of the confusion in the Christian faith or around the Christian faith today is from this thing where people read the Old Testament and they go, I don't get this because this is how it is with Jesus and why aren't they doing that? Or conversely, some Christians live today as if we were still bound by the Old Covenant. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. We're under this new covenant of grace and power, but yet they will try to say, oh, here's this law and Christians have to follow this law. It's interesting to me, by the way, whether it's the laws about tattoos, that's a common one, whether it's the laws about what day of the week you worship, Saturdays or Sundays, uh, whether it's the, you know, the laws about um, this thing or that thing. It's interesting to me that I have yet to have somebody who's super legalistic come up to me and say, you can't eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. Why? Because bacon-wrapped shrimp is delicious. But bacon-wrapped shrimp, it's not kosher. Now, the more that I have read the, the Hebrew scriptures, the more I have appreciated, the more I have appreciated that God was in, in a lot of those dietary laws and those sanitary laws, God was establishing food safety and public health policy for a primitive people. And if you lived in those days with no soap, with no knowledge of bacteria and viruses, with no knowledge about communicable disease, and you just lived by the Levitical law, you were getting spared cholera. You were getting spared botulism. You were getting spared pandemic. If you just lived according to God's law. but I'm thankful that we're not under God's law because I love bacon wrapped shrimp. That's a joke, but you understand what I'm getting to. 
that there's this confusion because some people see the Old Testament and they go, I'm trying to apply the New Covenant to the Old Testament and it doesn't work because it's the Old Covenant. Some people take the Old Covenant and try to apply it to the New Covenant and it doesn't work. So what is the law for? What, what purpose is God telling us? What story is God telling us? Galatians chapter 4 says, Galatians chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to a church in the city of Galatia, and they were being bothered by these teachers who were saying, take all of the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws, and you as New Testament believers still have to live by them. And specifically, even though you're not Jewish, as non-Jewish Christians, you have to live by Jewish custom. And this isn't anything new because I've seen this as an American. I've seen this in missions where Americans go to other parts of the world and will say, even though you're not American, you should live by American Christian custom. Not what the Bible actually says, but by American Christian custom. So, you know, 2,000 years later, we got the same issues. But Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Paul writing to them, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until a time set by his father. Now, what he means by an heir is not like an error, like you made a mistake, or I'm, or like hair, like the hair on my head, but, it, but the heir, the heir to the throne the person who will inherit. We don't say heir very often, but you do hear the word heiress a lot. You know, the, you know this person's the heiress to, to this fortune. The, the, the concept of the heir is this idea that let's say that, that somebody is from a very rich family and their, their father dies and they have now inherited this wealthy estate basically the plot of like Downton Abbey and Pride and Prejudice and all those kind of movies, uh, you know, those British period pieces. But somebody is very rich and they inherit this estate, but they're only eight years old. They don't get the money right away. They, they don't get control of the property right away. Uh, maybe they have a title that would in, empower them to have position in the government in that sort of system. They don't get to do that right away. Even if they're the king, let's say that they're the prince and they inherit the kingdom. You don't get to be in charge. That's where a regent comes in. So this idea is the same. If you have somebody who has died and inherited much, they don't get it right away. Verse four, but when the time has fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So the story that God is telling through the Apostle Paul to the Galatian church and to us in this day is that the law had a purpose. The old covenant, the old law had a purpose. The early Christians really thought about this concept of why Jesus came when Jesus came. You know, as, as, uh, as it says in verse four, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. And they really marveled at that. Why in our day, in our time, in our place did Jesus come? And we don't fully know the answer. 
for whatever reason, that moment in time, in that place, was when God knew was the perfect moment for, for Jesus to come. Now, we can see some things that go along with that, that uh, the way that the Roman Empire was and, and the, um, the empires to the east and the shared languages over multiple regions that spreading the gospel of Jesus was very easy. Just as in our day, um, if you learn Spanish, you can reach everyone south of California and even a lot of California, quite honestly. Uh, if, you know, if you learn Spanish, you can, you can preach the same message to people in Honduras as you do to people in uh, Venezuela, as you do to people in Chile, as you do to people in Mexico, um, as, you do, as you do to people that live here in our, in our own community. Uh, that, that learning Spanish is a lot of bang for your buck. Learning, China, uh, learning Russian is actually a lot of bang for your buck because uh, I was reading in a book last week about uh, somebody who went to teach people uh, the Bible in Kazakhstan. Well, you wouldn't think you'd learn Russian. You'd learn Kazakh, right? But see, here's the thing. Learning Russian, he could then also go to Kyrgyzstan. He didn't have to learn Kyrg and Kazakh he learned Russian because both nations used to be part of the Soviet Union. And then he could go to Georgia and he could go to Mongolia and he could go to all sorts of places, including Russia, that spoke Russian. And if you, uh, if you live in one of these Eastern or former Soviet countries, you learn Russian, it's a common shared language that you have greater effectiveness in your ability to spread the gospel. I have friends in Germany who are seeing all of these refugees come to their shores and they're seeing it as an opportunity. Hey, people from Syria and people from Libya and people from Eastern Europe, they're all coming here and they are learning German. So they are doing German classes so that they can connect with these people. And now that there is a shared language, it's German, they are able to share the gospel with them. The idea that Paul's trying to get across is that whatever the reason was, whether it was the shared language of the Greek language in the Mediterranean world and the, the Persian language and the Aramaic language to the east and the Coptic language to the south in Africa, whatever the reason was, whatever the reason was, at that moment, God sent his son. But before that, what was God to do? And so he was establishing these covenants specifically the old covenant, the law, the law of Moses. Okay, until Jesus comes, here is the overseer, the trustee, the regent. Here is the law that's going to let you know God's heart. It's going to keep you safe. It's going to protect you, but it's also going to show you that you cannot save yourself and that left to our own devices, people need a savior. The second thing that God tells us about the law, starting in verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's, meaning you are slaves to false idols and false faiths and, and false saviors. And, and an idol doesn't just have to be something carved out of wood or stone. A false savior uh, can be uh, a career, can be relationships, can be uh, uh, immorality, can be substance abuse. All of these things that we use as functional saviors to, to cope with the, the destruction in our world. Verse 9, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning your back to those weak and miserable forces? 
Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if I could have done so, or that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. They, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So, understand that this letter was written to the Galatian church. So they're having a conversation. Paul has heard news from them. He is now sending a response and we are listening in. So if you're going, what is he talking about? Let me fill in the gaps. Like I said earlier, there were these false teachers who had come and they said, hey, you Christians who are under this new covenant of grace from Jesus, you still have to follow all of the old rules. And you non-Jewish Christians, you have to follow all of the Jewish customs. And so he's saying, hey, there are these people here and they want you to follow their rules and they want you to be zealous for their uh, culture or their uh, legalism. And he's saying, hey, you're tempted to go back. Hey, you were set free. You were set free from false idols. You were set free from the idea that if you just kept certain feasts and certain occasions and certain rituals, then that made you a good person. You were set free from that. And now there's the temptation to go back. So the first thing that God tells us about the covenants and the law is that the old covenant, the law of Moses had a purpose. It was there to hold things in place until the right time when Jesus came. It was there to show us our need for Jesus. And it was there to show us that we couldn't save ourselves. But the second thing God tells us here in verses 8 through 20 is that we as people, even Christians, will be tempted to go back to the law. We will be tempted to think that we are better or more holy because we keep a list of rules or because we follow certain cultural norms or customs or, or, or some other man-made thing that is designed to puff up our own goodness or our own importance when all we have is whatever Jesus has given us. And that is enough. But there will always be the temptation to go back because we will say, surely there is something that I must do. And that's where I said most of the confusion in Christian faith comes from this confusing of the old and the new covenant. And we look and we see these things and we say, surely Jesus is not enough to save me. There's got to be something I, I must do. And over the centuries, you've seen Christians develop traditions. And they'll say, you, you can't be saved unless you're baptized. I think every Christian should be baptized. 
I think it's one of the easiest things in the world you can do to be obedient to Jesus. But it doesn't save you. Oh, you have to go through confirmation class. You know what? Taking a class to learn the basics of the Christian faith, great idea. But it doesn't save you. Oh, you have to keep these rules so that you are better. Don't, don't go to movies and, and uh, don't, don't drink and don't do these things. It's like, yes, you know what? There are movies that we should not watch. There are TV shows that we should not watch. Totally agree with that. And none of us should be given over to drunkenness, which leads to debauchery, that we should be sober. And I agree with that. Sobriety is absolutely one of, one of the core things that we believe Jesus gives us in freedom. And if you can have a beer and stay sober, uh, then do as God leads you. And some of us can't have anything and stay sober, and so our sobriety is, is free of those things. And, and everybody is different. I, I know great and godly women and men who loves Jesus, who are saved, and they also have a, you know, they're also going, Thanksgiving's coming. I got to get a good bottle of wine for Thanksgiving dinner. And then I have other friends who love Jesus and they know that the way that they're made up, they cannot have even a drop. And you know what? I, our previous church was in the Napa Valley. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the Napa Valley, their pretty much uh, main industry is wine and the tourism hospitality industry that goes with wine. And, and it was crazy to see people in the same row, one of whom was leading the, the recovery ministry and the other guy um, uh, made wine. <laughs> and God loved both of those guys and both those guys loved Jesus. My point is this, there will always be a temptation to go back to finding a way to think of ourselves as better because we keep a rule or we keep a custom, or we observe a day, or we're better because we worship on Sunday morning and those, those weirdos at that new church worship on Sunday night, or you guys worship on Sunday mornings, we worship on the Sabbath. We worship on Saturday. There's always going to be the temptation to go back. The law had a purpose, but that purpose has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The final thing that we're going to look at from Galatians chapter 4 that God tells us, the story that God tells, is this. Starting in verse 21, Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free. Now you might remember back when we studied Genesis a couple years ago, that Abraham, God said, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation and you're going to have so many descendants, but he didn't have any kids. And so instead of trusting God and staying faithful to his wife, he took another woman and he had relations with her and he had a son named Ishmael. And this son was not the product of faith. It was not the product of God's goodness. This son was the product of sin. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. God loved Ishmael. And I believe Ishmael will be in heaven. And God blessed Ishmael and Hagar, his mother. But he was not the child of promise. Isaac, born in miraculous circumstances when Abram and his wife Sarah were, were well advanced in years, well beyond childbearing years. And so Paul's saying, hey, Abraham had two sons. One of them was the product of the flesh, not trusting God. And one of them was the product of God's grace. Verse 24, these things are to be taken figuratively. The woman represents the 
The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. And what Paul is saying is Jerusalem, they are still slaves to the law. They are still trying to save themselves by keeping the rules and doing good works, and it'll never work. Verse 26, but the city of Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written, be glad barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than that of her husband. Or sorry, that of her who has a husband. So what Paul is saying is, hey, there, there is this physical Jerusalem where these guys, false teachers had come from They were trying to entrap the Galatians, trying to get them to go back. And he says, hey, there is a spiritual Jerusalem that is heavenly, and that is our true mother, that the grace of God is our true hope. Verse 28, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are the children of promise. And at the time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, there's a lot of backstory to that, and you can go read in the book of Genesis for yourself, but I'll get to this main point. What God is saying is this. The new covenant isn't just new. The new covenant is so, so, so much better. The new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Sometimes I think we think that the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is just as an upgrade, you know? Um, We've had the same TV for a decade. We've had the same TV for 10 years. And it's starting to go bad and the color's getting, you know, wonky. And it's not even 10 years old. It's older than that because my brother-in-law had it uh, for a number of years before. He had it for two, three years, then gave it to us. So it's like a 12, 13-year-old TV and it's going. So recently we, we bought a new TV. And you know what? If you buy a TV after having the same one for 10 years, it's a noticeable upgrade. Hey, the picture's better. It doesn't get wonky. The color doesn't go weird. The, you know, all these things, nicer screen, everything like that. Some people think that the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is just, oh, it's just a new model. It's got upgrades. Uh, the, the engine's better. There's more memory, you know, whether it's a car or a computer or a TV or a, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, it's just, it's just a little bit better, the new and improved version. No, the new covenant is night and day better. The, the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant is like the old covenant's like a television and the new covenant's like the holodeck on Star Trek, right? Where you're, you're not watching the TV show, you're in the TV show. The new covenant is, um, is immeasurably better because the new covenant has no basis in how good I am. It is all based on how good God is. And, and the work isn't done by me or you keeping the rules and doing the rituals and making sure the right sacrifices are presented. The work was done by God when he became a man. And Jesus was obedient to the will of his father and he did all the work, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. And we are empowered by God's Holy Spirit. So it's not just, here's a bunch of rules, keep them. Good luck with that. It's, 
Here is the power to live victoriously in Jesus. The new covenant is so much better. So much better. That's the story that God tells. The law had a purpose. The Old Testament law had a purpose. And it was good. And it was useful. But it's been fulfilled in Jesus. And you will be tempted to go back in some way. To find some way to say that I am a good person because of who I am and not because of Jesus. But the new covenant is so much better. It's so much greater. So what story do we live by? Well, some people are going to fall into that temptation to go back and seek justification through their own works, to seek righteousness before God. Justification, being made right before God. It's one of the two big words that every Christian should know, justification and sanctification. The story that some people are going to live by is they are going to try to justify themselves by their own works, even if it's in the framework of Christianity. Why are you saved? Why are you going to heaven? Why are you right with God? Well, I went to a confirmation class. Well, I was baptized. Well, I've taken communion. Great. And if you are truly in Christ, those are all fine things. None of them save us. Some people will live by the story that they ignore anything from the old covenant. I think that's bad too. I'll get to why in a minute. But while some people will live as if we are still under the old covenant, some people will say, I'm just going to ignore all of that. And I believe you'll miss out on the fullness of the goodness that God wants to put in our lives. And here's why. Because I think that the story that we as Christians need to live by those of us who are truly spiritual, those of us who are truly in Christ, we need to live by this. We need to find the heart that God put into the old covenant. Remember, Paul said that the law was useful. It served a purpose. What was that purpose? So when I read the Hebrew scriptures, when I read Genesis and Exodus, when I read the prophet Joel or the prophet Habakkuk, when I read the Psalms or the Proverbs, when I read the laments in Lamentations and Ecclesiastes, when I read the history in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, when I read the prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I look for the heart of God. I look for the principles. I look for Jesus. I, I say, okay, God, what is it that you're doing here? Like I said earlier, as I read through the Levitical law, all of the hand washing and the don't eat this food, and if, if you have a weird rash, do this thing, I, I say, God, I thank you that you cared about public health. Help me to have the humility to listen to public health experts in my day. Seems applicable. I would try to get the heart that's expressed through the old covenant. And then I say, okay, how can I live in the power of the new covenant and express that same principle? Let me give you an example. In the, in the 10 commandments, right? What are the 10 commandments? And one of them is don't commit adultery. A woman was brought to Jesus. She had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they said in the old covenant law, the law of Moses, it says that we should put her to death for this evil. And people who want to seek justification in their own works, metaphorically, and unfortunately, sometimes literally in, in the history of the Christian faith, 
have been like that crowd. Here's this person who is doing bad things and we are going to kill them so that we can feel better about ourselves that we upheld the justice of God. And I will find a way to put people down. I don't drink, and so if you do, I will put you down. I don't do this, and if you do that thing, I will put you down so that I can feel better about myself. And what did Jesus say to that crowd? You who are without sin, throw the first stone. And they all fled away, because none of them were without sin. And if I or you are making ourselves feel better about ourselves by putting other people down, may it never be because none of us are without sin and all of us need the grace and the mercy of God. But then what does Jesus say to the woman? He says to her, go and sin no more because adultery is still bad. Adultery still hurts people. Adultery is still an evil in the sight of God. So what does he do to the, to the person who's trying to uh, make themselves justified by their works, the religious person, the tr- person trying to live under the old covenant? He says, please, you need the grace of God too. And then he says to the woman in sin, go and sin no more. So what I think that the story that we need to live by is this. What is the heart of God in the Old Testament law? And how did Jesus deal with it? How did the first Christians live with it? And what did the apostles teach about it? Those three things are kind of how I filter stuff. There's a reason why I feel fine eating bacon-wrapped shrimp. Because Jesus says it's not what goes into a person, but what comes out that defiles them. So if you eat something that isn't kosher, that doesn't defile you. But if you spew hate, that defiles you. And you see that in the book of Acts, that the apostles said, you know what? God has clearly said that all things are clean. And even Paul said, like, when I came to you, I made myself like you. He said, you know, uh, he said, I, I, I didn't come and try to make you Jewish like, like Paul was. He said, I, I just lived among you as, a, as the Galatians do. And so you see Jesus teaching, the apostles living, and the apostles teaching it. And you could go on case after case after case. How do I deal with this thing or this religious law or this religious custom? What did Jesus teach about it? How did Jesus deal with it? How did the first Christians live with it? And what did the apostles teach about it over and over and over again? And so when we come to these covenant issues, you know, should a Christian get a tattoo? I don't think there's a big deal, but that's a, a thing people struggle with. Uh, should, should Christians have a beer or not? Should, um, how should Christians deal with a political question? Uh, are Christians to be uh, pacifists or, or are they to go to war? These are things that Christians have struggled with throughout the years. And so again, I look, how did Jesus deal with it? What did the first Christians live with it? And what did the apostles teach? And I have found that this is a fairly good filter overall to figure out I'm in the new covenant of grace, but the law still had a purpose. What was God's heart there? And God, the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me power to live in your heart. We have some questions uh, in the notes. Our small groups uh, meet. We have a Zoom small group. If you're not part of our Zoom small group, we would love for you to be part of that. And we will discuss and work through these things this week. But I want you to know this, 
that all of the Old Testament laws, they had a great purpose. They show us that we can't keep them. I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments. I guarantee that you have broken every one of them, and so have I. I can't keep the law. I needed Jesus to do it for me. And it also shows me God's heart, that where I have selfishness, God cleanse me. Where I have lust, God cleanse me. Where I have evil intent, God cleanse me and give me the power, what we call that other big word that every Christian should know, sanctification, to be set apart, to be made more like Jesus. God cleanse me and then empower me so that I can live for you. I don't believe that I am cursed or that you are cursed to always be sin, confess, sin, confess, that that God will change lives and does change lives. And I believe that that is available for all who cry out, Jesus, save me, and Jesus, cleanse me. I pray that God does that work in you as you look to him in faith. It's not of any work of righteousness that you have done or that I have done, but according to his mercies that God has saved us. God bless you. God loves you. God wants to forgive you and wants to empower you to live the life that God has for you. We'll see you next week.